Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. I'm AP Andy. And we're doing a very special episode today. Um, listeners who've been following along may have noticed we're getting up into the 90s. Uh, we, we hit Ep 98. That was pretty cool. Ep 99. And now we're at number 100. Number 100 with a bullet. And... Um, it worked out pretty serendipitously because for some reason, we never even discussed this, we decided not to name vampire castles, prolet cults, or history as a weapons. We decided not to give them numbers. So this is probably literally like episode 212, <laughs> but it's, it's 100 of our main episodes. We made it. And it could not have come at a more interesting time in the global proletarian struggle. Indeed. We are here. We are sitting here on Monday, uh, 6-8-2020. We are still basking in the glow of a over a week of uh, heroic... Glow of a burning precinct. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the glow of a burning precinct after over a week of revolt and rebellion and resistance and struggle by the part of an American working class uh, that seemed pretty docile and quiescent. Up until very recently, of course, as folks know, what kicked this off was the police murder on is it, uh, May, May 25th, right, of George Floyd, uh, a black man in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, he was murdered, as folks have probably seen already, by the pigs, turning into very quickly a series of protests, into a series of demos, into... Um, a direct confrontation and defeat of the police as uh, they managed, the protesters managed in their rage to burn down a fucking police precinct in the United States of America, something and that's never happened. John, you and I had a kind of fun night that night. We, I came over to watch um, October, the, right. the Eisenstein movie streaming on the, the Spectacle Twitch stream. And uh, we turned it off. We we're trying to figure out like what X Files episode to watch next. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, you were scrolling Twitter, like, "Hey, it seems like they're uh, they've taken over and are burning down a precinct." <laughs> and we just watched the Unicorn Riot live stream for hours, just in just, awe, uh, just in of awe of what we were seeing. Someone and, give that guy a Pulitzer, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Heath, I think yeah. his name is. Yeah. It was incredible. We. Uh, Oh my God! It was it was quite touching actually that we went from watching something on the rebellion and revolution of October into uh, what happened in Minneapolis. And we're going to talk today not about how this is the same, of course, as the Bolshevik Revolution. We know it isn't, but uh, we're going to talk about the dynamics at play here, the history at work, and what we're seeing right now in uh, what is a period of mass struggle in the country. Hell yeah. Um, you want to start out by talking about our experiences at the protests? We should do that. I think we should do that because uh, one advantage that the three of us have is that uh, obviously we all live here in New York City and New York City has, behind Minneapolis, of course, uh, become a major epicenter of protest and struggle. Of course, not merely over the police murder of George Floyd, but because there's a large city that has a very, very long history, left history, and at least 
two, three decades of anti-police work being done in its modern form in this, in this city. So what's interesting for us and what we've seen on the streets is the way that um, generations and generations of struggle against not just the NYPD, but also the entirety of the bourgeois state and the capitalist system has managed to kind of coalesce and, uh, and become a thing here. And we've all been out on the streets for all these days, and we've all seen it, and I think we've seen some interesting and important things out there. So do you want to start, Jamie? You want to give uh, a report back from the streets of NYC? Sure. So I've been out about four days now, maybe four and a half, if you count the very chill rally I went to in Bushwick the other day. Um, and, like, it, it really, the first thing that strikes me about this is um, just the scope of it, right? Because we've all been around the left a minute, We've, we did, we were at Occupy, we were at Black Lives Matter. All of those times, it really seemed like just a pretty small subsection of society and a pretty small subsection of the working class here in New York and didn't really expand in the way that it needed to. I mean, Occupy was huge, but it was still just like a very localized thing centered in a physical space downtown. Um, and this like... I was thinking back to um, the episode we did on the protests in Puerto Rico, how they really brought out every segment of Puerto Rican society. So this is not that quite yet, but it's the first thing I've experienced that felt like it could in any way, shape or form turn into that, right? Which is great, especially when you're used to being, you know, one of a lonely small group of leftists just um, saying the same shit for years and years on end. And now all of a sudden, like these demands are filtering down so quickly or up, I should say, from the grassroots to uh, liberal politicians. We're seeing calls to defund the police from Democrats and shit, which is like kind of nuts. And it, it makes me think that the real move now is um, how do we keep this from being recuperated by the Democrats, by the NGO industrial complex, and by the people who are going to crib language from this movement and say all the right words. But what they're actually proposing is um, woefully insufficient and oftentimes pretty much the same old reforms that have been tried and failed in the past. That's right. And I don't know how many times on this show we've said it. We've said it repeatedly that uh, quote-unquote progressives out there, progressives out there, uh, put the cart before the horse. They want to somehow pass meaningful legislation without there already being a social base in the streets, in the workplaces for it. And that there's been no greater evidence of that than how quickly you've seen the national conversation turn after decades of discussion about mass incarceration, about police violence, yada, yada, yada. All of a sudden now defund and abolish is on everybody's lips and something they have to confront. Um, Should we talk about the streets a little more before we get yeah, into I was, the... Uh, I was going to jump in and talk about... I was just... I was saying that... Hold on one second. And in a real way, too, what the phenomenon that Jamie's talking about is true, that the activist left so-called in the United States, in New York City especially, has in a sense dissolved into this mass of people. The amount of support on the streets, it, it has to be close to 100%. You see mass rallies, mass marches with um, just a whole cross-section of the city population. And um, I think it's important to, to talk about um, 
Yeah, like exactly what we saw because the, the dynamics at work are pretty interesting. So uh, in addition to a whole bunch of marches uh, and protests, I was fortunate to, shall we say, witness two of these riots that more and more people are talking about. More and more people, folks. Donald Trump's talking about it. The major, major media's talking about it. This is uh, a real change, again, away from sort of peaceful protest, A to B marches, even Occupy, right, which had at its heart this sort of civil disobedience, uh, nonviolent direct action. It's not that anybody chose to riot. It's in a sense that the working class in Minneapolis... Uh, led by a black vanguard, as it were, um, organically created uh, the conditions for a riot. I was in Flatbush. I believe it was the second night after things had popped off in New York City. And I saw shit that I'd never seen in my life. Uh, I had been there on those same exact streets uh, in a mostly West Indian Caribbean neighborhood in 2013 when the NYPD shot an unarmed kid in the back named Kamani Gray, black of course. I'd been on protests in those streets before. Uh, I'd seen the dynamic at work, but this was completely different. I saw... Well, they had just arrested Jake Flores, so people were really mad. That's right. The entire... I, I arrived about 10 minutes after they had arrested Jake Flores, and the entire crowd was up in the police faces saying, uh, we want Flores, give him back. <laughs> it was pretty incredible to see that sort of uh, that unity on the streets there calling for Jake's surrender. <laughs> Jake's well, muttering from the other room. <laughs> like you saw on Twitter, they outlawed bikes. So um, everyone is Jake Flores now. Everyone with a bike, you know. You think he, he's not the only one who's having his bike stolen anymore. It's even even journalists just witnessing it have had been clubbed and had their bikes taken by the cops. We are all Jake Flores at this moment. The difference between 2013 and, and 2020 was essentially people angry enough and willing enough to like literally um, assault law enforcement <laughs> officers uh, to literally start fires in the street and burn shit down. There was no looting in Flatbush of like neighborhood businesses. It was directly against the cops. You know, I saw shit that I'd never seen people punching cops in the face, getting away with it. People smashing bottles, throwing bricks at police. I saw um, a police light tower, an NYPD light tower, brought down and set on fire and turned into an impromptu barricade. I saw a squad car of the NYPD come down Church Avenue and groups of young people on both sides behind cars smashing out every window of the cop car uh, with bricks and bottles and the cop car simply fleeing and never come back. So for people who live here, people who know the history of the NYPD, they've seen this implacable force for all these years, for all these decades, in invincible, almost unlimited resource, unre uh, resources and unlimited capacity for violence. Uh, we saw that end. We, I saw in Flatbush the cops being defeated, which I never thought I'd see in my entire life. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so that, I mean, that was Friday night when, you know, Thursday night there was a solidarity demo that got repressed by the police the same way they had sort of stopped the momentum of Black Lives Matter by making sure that activists couldn't do these snake marches. Uh, but Friday changed everything because people, um, and as far as I know, this has started at, at Barclays moving through Fort Greene to the 80th, 88th Precinct, people actually started fighting back. Um, and the police, you know, as effective as they've become at taking care of activists by the the thousands you know we've had we had these ftp marches this fall and winter and the the police 
you know, although they lost control at times, they it was it's nothing like Friday. Just nobody was really challenging them in the way that they were on a Friday night. And once they felt like their, uh, you know, their, uh, their, they were at risk of being attacked, um, they kind of ceded a lot more space. And then that's how you got situations on Saturday through Monday where there was mass looting throughout Manhattan. It's not that there, was, there wasn't enough police to come and make arrests at those stations, but they knew that if they did that, they might have things thrown at them or, you know, some of them did get shot at or run over by cars of people escaping and that was a, that was something the NYPD hadn't dealt with probably since the 80s. Right. Yeah, that's right. I spent Saturday night um, witnessing uh, passively from the crowd as a uh, NYPD squad car was lit on fire and there was a uh, face-off with the police who kept retreating and there were bands of people, um, young people, no outside agitators, just, you know, young people from New York City uh, taking the streets and holding the streets. They were homegrown outside agitators. <laughs> right. That's what de Blasio was saying. Right, okay, de what? Blasio. I guess to the extent that they were from the outer boroughs mostly and came into Manhattan, you could say they were outside yeah. agitators. They were not from Soho. Not, <laughs> I mean, born and raised. the entire working class is an outside agitator in Manhattan. Right. Because they're not allowed to live there anymore. Andy, Andy, why don't you jump on, because you have some interesting, you saw a lot to some interesting takes about this gravitation of people towards Manhattan and this, the forms of direct action that were taken. Yeah, so on Saturday, there were, like, big protests during the day. That was the first day in New York of, like, basically mass protests because the, the word had gotten out that the police lost control for a, a moment the night before. You know, the NYPD flipped out and put out these tweets saying, like, they're overrunning the precincts and stuff like that, which wasn't true. Uh, but they did lose control in the way that they hadn't in a long time so the next day people wanted to uh, join the movement basically and some people kind of wanted to to see how far they could push like what was possible now there was rallies all over the city in every borough called by uh, the people's power assembly Um, and in in Flatbush they kind of marched everyone in a circle and after that was done people just kind of went by themselves through Prospect Park people were like applauding them in the park and then they kept pushing towards the bridge and as police tried to break up the protest, tried to, like, you know, um, fragment it, people started fighting back once again around dusk. And that's when that incident with the, the cars happened that I'm sure everyone's seen. People were stopping the cars from driving into the protest and cutting it in two. And then they marched over the Manhattan Bridge into Soho. You know, it was dark at this point. This is when more cop cars were burned. This is when... Looting of all the hype beast streetwear stores began, and that just that just uh, expanded every day until Monday, and then I th- it sounds like it finally died down on Tuesday. But Monday, you had thousands of mostly black kids from marginal neighborhoods coming into Manhattan and just taking over, taking what they wanted from all the way from downtown to midtown. There was also looting in like. Fordham and the Bronx and Queens, and, but, but to a much lesser extent. I remember on Sunday, again, being in Manhattan during the what we can call, I guess, the time of riots, those three, four days. Um, a very, very interesting dynamic. And I, and I think it's important that we talk about activism and we talk about the quote-unquote left because this crowd of maybe a 1,000 people, just this one march on Broadway in Manhattan, uh, had stopped for a minute. Somebody had a giant speaker system in PA, 
and they started playing like hyphy shit in the middle of the street. It turned into this sick dance party. I have I have a video of it. And at the same time, there were young groups of kids, primarily black, but not only, who were organically spreading out around that area, smashing up like Chanel and Louis Vuitton stores and taking the shit in there, uh, taking the shit inside and looting. And this humongous dance party was popping off and everybody was feeling great. It was a really good time. The cops were like taking care of the burning squad car they had up the street. And then an activist came. I'm not sure which group he was from. He wasn't from FTP. Uh, he might have been out of the old Occupy movement. He may have been like an embedded sort of left activist in spaces for many, many years. But he came over with a megaphone and he broke up the dance party. And he said, you can party any night you want, but this night we're focused directly on police brutality. And the crowd kind of groaned and like, you know, for a minute they wavered and then finally they kind of broke up the party and walked over to confront the police again. But there was this interesting dynamic where it was, uh, it was a moment of revolt, but it was also joyous at the same time. And in this case, the activist left was able to stop <laughs> the joyous street party that had involved looting and burning. But that wasn't always the case. And it points to this interesting sort of relationship between activists and activism on the one hand and the things that are actually happening in the streets. You know, the, the way that activism itself was overcome, as it were, in the course of mass struggle. Spontaneity, baby. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the, a lot of the stuff we've been reading in my Emerge Reading Group, uh, the dialogues between uh, Rosa Luxemburg and Lenin about, you know, the role that should be played by spontaneity in revolutions and in uprisings versus the role that should be played by this more organized and regimented party, right? And uh, I think they both made some good points. Uh, I don't think this question is settled yet, but a lot of the time, I'm not comparing this directly to 1917. Of course, that would be uh, jumping the gun a little bit. But um, a lot of the time, uh, the spontaneous self-activity of the working class that arises often gets out in front of the activist left or the party or whatever party-like organs we may have, right? Because I don't think we really have anything that could be called the party right now in the United States, although some people are very quick to declare themselves the party, and that's how you get all these little splintery sects of all these different groups. Like, I'm not going to name any names, but they all think that they're the party. Feels a little premature. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a balance. And I think at, at best, the thing that the party does is it um, serves to kind of cohere a political vision from what's going on in the streets and have sort of a, a symbiotic relationship with it. And as part of it, um, it, it's not just this organ that exists and uh, kind of dictates theory from on high. But um, I think in this case, the organized left has really been um, caught on the back foot by a lot of this stuff. I know uh, the DSA is not really sure what to do right now as a whole. They're kind of um, struggling to find what their role should be in this movement and how they can best contribute um, I think, you know, my caucus is part of DSA, but we've been at least talking about this stuff for a while and trying to figure it out. And we've been having a lot of conversations about um, where we go from here. Like, I think for this, in, or in order for this to sustain itself, we need to get organized labor involved. Um, 
There's already been a call by the WGA, the Writers Guild, to kick the uh, police out of the AFL-CIO, which is pretty cool. We've seen some uh, strikes, at least symbolic work stoppages from uh, public sector unions. And I think there's a real need for uh, general assemblies as well. So everyone involved, all the groups and individuals involved in these street actions can uh, talk to each other about strategy and tactics and demands and what they want going forward because I don't think we have that much time left before this is recuperated by these more liberal forces that we've been talking about. I mean, I think that someone make a case that it's recuperated already, or at least there's a process of recuperation happening. Before we talk about, I, I think you're, you're correct about all that, the, the party form that arises out of this, the party being like, you know, people organized in order to kind of crystallize what had happened in this movement and try to push it forward in a purposive way. I think that that's an open question at this point, how that's going to look, or even if that's going to arise at all. But I think it's important before we go too far to look at the historical context of this, right? To understand the dynamics at work. Because it's not, of course, there's always a history to these things. It was only spontaneous to the extent that nobody organized the rebellion, revolt, and insurrection in Minneapolis. But it has a history, of course, right? So um, I, I, I'm going to like pat myself on the back a little bit right here. I was seeing what was happening with the COVID crisis, which I think it's impossible to, to separate this completely from the global pandemic and the lockdowns that were happening. I had a tweet in March where I said, where I was looking at the reaction of uh, Trump and the, and the government and, and Cuomo and everybody to uh, the COVID pandemic and seeing how insufficient and scattered it was and ultimately how little they gave a fuck about any of us, gave a fuck about the working class, whether we live, die, can pay rent, can work, whatever. And I said, this is a legitimacy crisis for the bourgeois state. And... I think that that has been vindicated in a lot of ways. I think that you, you, you can't separate, again, this like direct instantiation of revolt from the larger forces at work. And I think that people having been in pandemic for three months, been in, in lockdown, shows a lot. It, it, it explains a lot towards why this happened in the way that it did where it did. Well, people aren't going to work, right? Like a lot of people didn't have jobs before the pandemic. You want to talk about surplus populations or the quote unquote lumpen proletariat. I don't really like that term. I, I think the, the lumpen are not so lumpen. And that's why um, I've been studying a little bit more about like the Black Panthers and stuff. And I think that's why a lot of them were Maoists, right? Because Mao had a theory of the lumpen proletariat as being able to achieve a class consciousness and participate in class struggle um, in a way that Marx didn't do better, Marx. Mm. But um, where was I going with this? Um, some people were out of work before this happened. Some people, a lot more people were out of work after it happened. And it's not that hard to see how if everybody is sitting at home with nothing to do because they lost their jobs, um, they're being hit from all sides by austerity, they know no help is coming. The state doesn't give a shit about them. Something like this happens, of course they're going to go out and protest. They're going to do it every fucking day because there's nothing else for them to do anyway. So like a lot of the, uh, the, the traditional valves or things that would tamp down on class struggle, like, oh, Working class people have to go to work. That's not there anymore in the way that it was before. Yeah. I, I think, too, like, 
You know, we talked a lot, obviously, for the last five years about Bernie Sanders and his campaign. I think it's very telling that all of a sudden um, both Corbyn in the UK and Bernie eat shit within a few months of each other. And then a massive revolt arises because this is this is the, the complicated thing about history and class consciousness is that. Those millions upon millions, tens of millions of people who are waiting for social democracy and for social democratic movements to essentially save them, right, to, to use state action in order to reform things. Those people didn't go away when Bernie Sanders gave up, when Corbyn lost, right? They're still out there. So you had this moment in a long, for like happened for the first time in a long time where people's expectations were being raised, of course, all the forces came together in order to destroy those movements, both from within and without. But, you know, Bernie Sanders himself has just kind of faded away into the background, just like these activists have. You know, people aren't paying attention to what he says. He's not an organizing principle of this. Because in a sense, the historical dynamic that Bernie Sanders was part of uh, did its work and has moved on. And now something else is happening, something on a larger scale, something more direct, something less mediated, but something that also reflects the same contradictions of class society and American society that the rise of the Bernie Sanders movement was there to confront. Yep. And, you know, like the great uh, Twitter philosopher Lenin said, there are years where you fuck around and weeks where you find out. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's also important that the, the struggles that we've seen over the last decade, beginning with Occupy Wall Street, you know, this was a movement pointing towards class contradiction and the rising concentration of wealth into a small period, a small amount of hands. But you couldn't really, but that you still, you couldn't like bring ACAB or FTP messaging to Occupy until like the very end when it was dying. And then with Black Lives Matter, you know, um, also having some economic uh, foundations, but largely in, in response to police killings. Even that, I think, was largely the vanguard of it, was activists and students, uh, outside of Ferguson, of course. But now we've reached a point where both of those movements have been, like, in the, in the course of just a couple of days, were completely overcome in terms of its achievements in the streets, uh, to the point when you're seeing, like, the like the large liberal friendly daytime protests, everyone's chanting, fuck the police. Everyone's chanting, defund the police, abolish right. the police. NYPD suck my N dick. <laughs> NYPD suck my dick. The organic demand of this movement, <laughs> the one demands. Um, and, and the tactic of, you know, of tactics of, of looting, uh, of, of taking over and burning down a police precinct and like repelling police lines, which were very controversial during black lives matter, are now far more popular, although there is, you know, narratives trying to paint that as external to the movement. That was found, it's foundational to this moment. Um, and so even if things are dying down now or like, you know, the, the rhetoric is moving into the hands of the people who, you know, are, are most likely to be on TV and the politicians, uh, the next time something like this happens, it's going to start at the peak of what we saw. Right. It's Absolutely. not, not going to start at like, you know, days of peaceful protest. Yeah, this is, again, why, um, you know, there was a lot of griping over the last how many years has it been fucking when was when was Occupy nine years ago? 
at this point. Something like Something that. Something like that, 2011. There was a lot of griping about hippies and drum circles and the insufficiency of the strategy of Occupy Wall Street, how it was destined to fail, how it had, like, at its heart, a very liberal sort of notion, not just of class, but also of class struggle, how it was, you know, very inward-facing and not expandable. You can share those critiques, which I do. You know, I, I was there. We were all there down at Occupy Wall Street, down at Zuccotti Park. We lived through it. But it's absolutely um, not just insufficient, but also uh, kind of bullshit <laughs> uh, uh, mode of analysis to just completely shit upon either Occupy or Black Lives Matter or the FTP, the fuck the police protest that happened here in New York City, or any of these kind of instantiations of revolt because... In a cycle of struggle, we have to understand this. We are in a cycle of struggle, whereas Andy said, you have this progression from one phase to another, and each informs the one before it. In a sense, each particular act of revolt and resistance is making its own theory and kind of presenting its own overcoming as these, as these battles, as these uh, moments of struggle reach kind of the limits of what they're able to do themselves. They produce these theories, they produce these forms of practice that are then that then subside for some amount of time, but ultimately come back and synthesize all of the other sort of, um, I don't know, phenomena uh, that had existed in the past. That's right. I'm here for the synthesis. Here um, for the synthesis, baby. I, I would also posit that the WTO protests even earlier oh, yeah. played a role in this cycle of struggle and have been synthesized as well. Because a lot of what we're talking about, a lot of these problems, mass incarceration, over-policing, I mean, I think any policing is over-policing personally, um, but these go back to deindustrialization and stuff that happened going back to the neoliberal turn of the 1970s, right? Like you can track um, the increases in budgets to police departments. Specifically, I think this began in the 1960s when we really started to beef up our carceral state uh, beyond what other countries in the developed world had. Yes. Um, you can track that with the great migration of uh, black former sharecroppers from rural areas to cities, not just in the north, but in the south as well, all over the country. And to give a, a, a hat tip to historical materialism, why was there that uh, great migration in the first place? It's because primarily black sharecroppers were automated out of their job by, by cotton uh, techniques, mm -hmm. right? So it's, very, it's a very capitalist sort of formation even of itself, yep. historically. So, so you had a bunch of former sharecroppers migrating to the cities um, at a time when industrialization was already, it had already peaked. It already reached its peak. And the first wave was largely absorbed by the industrial economy, but the second wave was not. Um, I guess I went over this a little bit on our Twitch stream, but basically you had a lot of working class people competing for a dwindling number of jobs. And that was not a recipe for class unity. That was a recipe for uh, racism and bigotry, which, you know, kind of created a negative feedback loop. It's like, which came first, the racism or the failure to unite as a class? I don't know. They both fed each other. I'm, certainly racism uh, was an obstacle to people uniting as a class, but I think a lot of that racism came from the real material competition that existed in the first place in the cities. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, I, I, think, I think taking a historical long view and tying it back to 
WTO, the Seattle Revolt of 1999, is smart because one of the cunnings of history is that uh, events can arise that stop the momentum of any social movement. And 9-11 was a, was a real, <laughs> really, really important moment uh, for that because you had these attacks in New York City, uh, in Pennsylvania, in Washington, D.C., and a lot of the anti-globalist sort of movement uh, ends up be- getting steamrolled. Huh? We say globalization, globalization. Did I, say glo- I believe. Did I say globalism? Okay, wow. Alex Jones. You said anti-globalist. So, oh, God. So a lot of the globe fight back emoji, in, in 2001 emoji, against the globalists <laughs> was uh, affected by 9-11. Uh, and, and so, like, th- this, a lot of the traditions that we work with, in a lot of the our understanding of the world comes out of these sort of these struggles that had had been there had been a counter revolution against like a, a thermidor against where state forces where political forces are able to kind of like sweep the the slate away clean the slate by uh, coming up with uh, more reactionary and conservative things for people to worry about. These are the. This is a sound clip I added of the drums of the WTO protest. <laughs> it's not your neighbor drumming. It's not, it's not our neighbors uh, oh drumming, God. that's right. I think, you know, as much as, like, all these previous movements uh, kind of contributed to the, the, the actions of this one, I, it's hard to, to imagine that anything contributed more to it just than the lack of short-term or long-term future for young people. Right. And we have to remember, you know, like, even though the the vanguard of this movement, the people that pushed it the farthest were young black people, um, the majority of the working class is young. The majority, so you know, if you've got like this imagination of what the working class is, the majority of them are young, pissed off people who don't own anything and recognize they have no future, uh, and they, you know, they might want to fight against that uh, that reality but they're not going to be able to do it through representative politics. So I think we're going to see more things like Minneapolis and like nationwide looting and nationwide fighting back against the police um, to push things forward because what else can you do? Like yeah, we've been yeah. saying about the Zoomers, man, you think millennials are bad. You think millennials are entitled. Ooh, they all want to vote for Bernie Sanders. They all like Medicare for all. Like the Zoomers don't care about any of that. <laughs> The Zoomers are coming to wreck your shit. <laughs> Their transitional demand is body slamming a cop. Seriously. I mean, did you guys see the story in The Intercept? Yes. Yeah. About how the federal government, like one of their, uh, what do you call it? Their, their like trial runs or whatever for a crisis situation is literally the Zoomer apocalypse. Yeah. So <laughs> the Z-bellion, they call it. Y- you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that generation and, and class is a big part of this. Like part of the... Part of what was so amazing about all the forces again that aligned to stop social democracy over the last few years is that they did this on purpose, right? They didn't want there to be a reformist outlet because they didn't think that they needed to, to, to basically do anything to like give people an option because they thought that the system was good and the system was okay. Coronavirus again this double crisis that's both uh, social and economic at the same time kicks the rungs out from something that was already unstable to begin with. Again, we've been talking about this shit for years, socialist economies, that like they, this is a reflection of real material conditions, this social democratic movement. And in a sense, like it's necessary for capital itself, right, for there to be these reforms, to give people the peaceful option out. 
and they chose no. They chose destroy the movements, uh, you know, leave the leave all the concerns out of the media. And then I guess they can they thought that people were going to go quiet and just like you know go away, crawl back under a rock. Yep, like you guys were talking about on history is a weapon, right? Like. All of the safety valves, the historical safety valves for class struggle in this country have been removed. Right. Pretty much. Home ownership, uh, home rising ownership, wages. That's done. Yeah. Like most millennials are never going to own a home. Most Zoomers are never going to own a home. They're just going to build fucking nests under a bridge <laughs> where they will talk about anime and stockpile weapons. <laughs> right. Uh, there, there was a, the incredible Zoomer moment of you saw all over protests, uh, TFW, no GF, you know, uh, Zoomer, Zoomers, uh, out graffiti tagging, like the feeling when no GF in the middle of like a fucking giant, uh, fire filled riot. But I think that I want to, I want to make sure we do this though. And I think that Andy is the person to do this because his analysis has been really fucking solid of this the whole time is to talk about this particular form of looting that has arisen because a lot of the hysteria you saw, not just from the Republicans and conservatives, of course, but the liberals, part of what fried their brains and, and really, really fucked them up and, and caused them to attack the movement in really weird ways uh, has been the, the looting, right? Not even just riots, but like it was seen as by the liberal media, by the Democrats, by polite society, that like things were okay until people started to smash open the target and steal flat screen TVs or whatever. But there's a long history of looting as this sort of tactic of proletarian struggle. So Andy, you want to... It's not just a tactic, right? It's kind of a corollary. Like there have been a lot of back and forth about... Is this looting connected to these political uprisings or is it pure opportunism, it opportunism? on the part is of it? people who want shit? Right. Like, I feel like it's somewhere in the middle, right? And, like and it's just it's just a for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, right? This is what just, happens. It's not just opportunism. That's part of the outside agitators thing too, right? Like this is part of been, uh, let me let me let Andy, Andy go on this in, in defense of yeah, looting. While we still have this Gil Scott hair and beat. I don't even know if it's Uh, picking up. So I think, you know, what what made this movement what it was, obviously, was what happened in Minneapolis, but then also, like, the mass mass, uh, protests that followed it everywhere in the country um, that at times were totally peaceful, uh, non-confrontational, you know, including in the suburbs, you know, everywhere. And then at times we're, you know, looting fires, burning down buildings, attacking cops and so on. Uh, and so you've got like this good side and a bad side. And the good side is praised by everyone up to Donald Trump. Right. And the bad side's condemned by pretty much everyone. Like very few people are really uh, supporting it. People are saying, well, it's the language of the unheard, not really denouncing it, but not really supporting it. I think those two sides are in a dialectic uh with one another, uh, they both need each other. Nobody would be doing these big good protests if it wasn't for the bad protests that kicked it off in Minneapolis. And the bad protests need the legitimacy and the uh, the, the masses uh, or the, the people who can enter through the good side in order to make sure the police don't just come like killing and destroying everybody because those images are going to make matters worse. It's going to make the the bad side bigger. And I think over the course of what happened in New York, at least, um, for a while, the bad protected the good because the police wanted to get rid of all of it, um, but they could only really get rid of the bad stuff that happened at night. 
So you got to the point where the good protests were, you know, taking over the city every day. Uh, even today, they're a huge protest, although they're dying down now. And then at night, the police decided which ones they'd let continue and which ones they'd violently suppress. Up until the weekend where they just stopped arresting people almost all together right. because the, the bad side had kind of died down. Um, so although the questions of looting are, you know, like I don't think they sh- it should be like blanketly condemned or, or totally romanticized, um, but I will say that absolutely there was in New York and other places political looting, looting that was not purely just to like, you know, fill up a van and resell it later as a business, but to, uh, you know, to feel the power of being able to break into a shop and distribute everything amongst everybody else on the march to say fuck you to the police, to Manhattan itself for being so awful and alienated. and To class uh, society itself, a society that, that doesn't give you any relief during an epochal uh, economic shutdown and, and pandemic. And if, you know, if you end up, if one of these people... If a, if a looter ended up getting, like, a Supreme shirt that they wanted or a skateboard that they wanted out of it, uh, I don't think that's pure opportunism. Uh, I think that there probably were opportunists, uh, but I don't think you can separate them from the march, any, from the, the movement, from the rebellion, any more than you can separate the professional activists that are trying to control right. things either. Right. I think that those are two extreme ends, and in the middle are the people who really pushed things forward and made it happen that were political but also represented a lot of that bad side. Right. Hell yeah. I mean, a good example of that is the looting of a Target in Minneapolis, right? Because... They're like, oh, no, the poor Target. Like, that Target, Target gives money to the cops. Target was giving money to the cops in Minneapolis. And we saw actually a really cool thing that some of the protesters set up where they had created this uh, mutual aid distribution hub with, quote, unquote, looted goods. I prefer to think of them as liberated (laughs) goods from Target. Certainly expropriated. And um, I actually got a DM from one of those people. Turns out... They're a listener. Pretty fucking cool, right? Shout out to whoever you are out there who turned all those expropriated goods into a uh, really free market for everybody. Yeah, so maybe we could get them on the on the stream on the pod sometime to talk about that. That would be sick. The um, shout out to everybody, by the way. We've been getting a lot of messages and tweets and emails from people who have been out there in the streets. Shout out to all of you, and shout out also to everybody for. I think pretty effectively, it got dicey there for a little bit, but pretty effectively um, slithering out of the really bad faith outside agitator smears yeah. that were thrown around. People remember that. It was like three, four days ago, right? It was this good, bad protest thing. And it was literally the president of the United States on down talking about Antifa, outside agitators coming to destroy the community. There was a really intense and in some cases successful effort to try to keep this revolt, which again, of course, the the proximate cause of this insurrection was the police murder of George Floyd and the history of all the police murders, right, which have been unresolved, the police brutality and mass incarceration unresolved for decades, right? Of course, that was the proximate cause for this. But of course, of course, of course, uh, the powers that be and the liberal media and the politicians, certainly the NGOs, right, and those people who speak to, who claim to speak for the community, there was a, a concerted attempt, of course, to use this idea of community, 
right? To use this idea of representation and to use this idea of inside uh, good protesters versus outside bad protesters in order to directly stop a black-led multiracial coalition of working class people that was fighting en masse for to end police brutality, you know, for George Floyd uh, in his passing, but also, as we've talked about more generally, a kind of revolt, a working class revolt against class society. And that was an attempt. The outside agitators things was, was an attempt in order to stop that coalition from being formed. And this is a very old narrative, right? Like going back to the days of slave uprisings, because there was this racist ideology in place that said uh, black people are inherently childlike and servile, right? And they're fine with being second-class citizens. And any time that they rise up and revolt, they couldn't possibly have figured that out on their own, right? There must be some white communists uh, getting them all riled up, right? And what that meant was the Jews, so this is a very old narrative. It's a racist narrative. It's an anti-Semitic narrative. It's a trope, if you will. It is. Got to watch out for those tropes. And they're, they're trying it again. And they're, they're using like a weird twisted kind of uh, identity politics, too. Because Trump, he's trying to get some black people to vote for him, right? He can't say... He's not like like uh, Sam was confused on the majority report why Trump wasn't going like fully racist with the things he was saying about it. He was like, oh, it's these white anarchists. It's Antifa. It's these uh, these outside folks that are doing this. And like he probably doesn't really know the history of that, but um, he's he's within it. And now, and, and they keep changing their minds too about who it is. Like I saw another narrative out there that, oh, it's... um. It's actually people operating on behalf of the Venezuelan government. Oh, right. Yes. Like, is it white anarchists? Is it brown socialists? They're is trying it Putin? whatever. Putin. That take is out there, too, that it's Putin directing these with the FSB from fucking Moscow. Yeah, a lot and, of people think it's Nazis, and a lot of people think it's cops. Right. And we just need to really, you know, it's not like people don't hide their identities and, like, try to... Uh, manipulate things in the street but usually you can see through those things just with politics but I will say and I've been in a lot of fights about this uh, cops don't um, do black blocks and smash things uh, they they don't attack each other um, they don't lead like uh, a, a bunch of people to start being violent that's not what they want they want to control things they want to de-escalate things um, there are police provocateurs, uh, and we know what they do. They do the same thing pretty much over and over again for the last 20 years. They go into activist groups, especially anarchist groups, and say, like, hey, you know, if you really hate the system, if you're really tough, you'll make a Molotov cocktail, right. or you'll make a bomb, yep. or you'll buy a gun and, like, target this politician or whatever. And then they arrest that person on terrorist charges before they do it and publicize it as proof of how dangerous these groups are. The same thing they were doing to Muslim Americans, right? Setting them up basically um, uh, to be taken down for, uh, for these charges, yeah. Right, but they're not putting bricks around the cities. They are not dressing up as black box protesters and burning down buildings. Um, when they do destroy things, you know they're doing it because they're in police uniforms, like when they slash uh, tires of cars in Minneapolis. But they're doing that to make sure people can't get around, you know? Uh, it's not such a mystery what these cops do. They're not so sophisticated 
Um, doesn't mean that you shouldn't uh, be a little suspicious of, of everything you see, but you also have to be suspicious of just like a video of a pile of bricks that say these were put here by the right. police or these were put here by Soros or these were put here by Antifa. Um, that's just a construction site. Right. I know <laughs> them well, video, and that's just uh, a construction site. That video was debunked. Yeah. We talked yeah. about it today on the majority report, actually. Th- th- this is like real quick. Like I think what Andy's saying is really important because from the outside, from the, from the media and from the libs and the politicians and the mind controllers, the mind jailers out there, they want the to... The info warriors. The info warriors, the... Uh, the globalists out there, <laughs> just kidding. They, what they want, they, they're trying to make good protesters and bad protesters, right? Good protesters are out there in the street doing the same A and B marches that got Black Lives, that got all, all of the, the movements over the last several decades absolutely nowhere. Those are the good guys. Then there's the bad people who come out at night and smash and grab and loot, fight police, set fires or whatever. Something similar to that happens inside of the movement too. And it's not just some like, bad inside agitators doing it. It's a reflection of the kind of contradictions within the revolt itself, that there are people who are, who are good faith, who are going out there fighting alongside everybody else, but they don't want to believe that inside, internal to this revolt, there are the forces that would do things that they don't see as good actions, that they don't see as truly reflective of what the movement is about. So in a way, it's about... it's a tearing apart from the inside, right? When you say that anybody who does something you don't want to do is a cop, right? Anybody who uses this particular tactic is an outside agitator. Um, It's probably not true. It might be, but still, like, the unity... Uh, this disunity that exists is is a reflection mostly of the politics and the political differences between like left liberalism on the one hand and a pro revolutionary politics on the other, and all of this these accusations going back and forth are more a reflection of that political split within the movement itself than actual outside actors coming in and and, and fucking yeah. things up and for what's everyone. What's beautiful about these rebellions at their peak is when they break down these divides between good protesters yes. and bad protesters, between white and black, between uh, day and night. The dusk of revolt. Between neighborhoods, you know, people going to Flatbush and fighting alongside people from Flatbush. Yes. Uh, that's how racism is challenged. That's how people build uh, class power, you know. And, and ultimately, if you are attacking police and property, that's not something the the petty bourgeois and bourgeois classes are going to be able to tolerate and no. appropriate. That That is not something anyone in the state wants. So a similar dynamic has happened over the last few days. Uh, this last this past weekend, the looting has ended in New York City. It was partially because of the curfew put in place, of course. Uh, but also there's been a kind of organic deflation of some of the more bad protestery type stuff. As uh, massive protests and marches of like hundreds of thousands of people have remained in Philadelphia, in L.A., in Washington, D.C., of course, in New York City. We're all three of us together out there a couple nights ago uh, marching through the streets of the city. But there has been a change from the highways. We, t- we took the FDR. That's what I always tell my cab driver, but we did it ourselves. <laughs> I say, take the FDR. But we did it. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's like there, there's a lot of back and forth right now on social media about like how is it that we let 
this recuperation happened? How is it that all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, these activists came that we had never heard of before with really good equipment. They were able to turn things from like a social eruption from an insurrection into simply like the same sort of left activists, NGO adjacent, Democrat adjacent sort of protest movements that we've seen a thousand times. It's not to say that that's not true. There are a ton, if you go on Twitter, you find a ton of threads about all of a sudden, like, real sketchy people coming out and, like, making deals with the cops on everybody's behalf, getting them to kneel down, getting them to, like, hug the pigs and shit like that. That is really real. However, right, it, is, it goes too far to say that that is the reason why things have subsided, right? They're more of a reflection of this sort of, like, progression of this movement that started with this heroic, in Minneapolis, heroic uh, revolt against the police and against the city and against capital with the looting, but now has kind of morphed into a different type stage, right? So it's important to see that... Um, this shift from a revolutionary action into more reformist, certainly more recuperated action happens all the time. If it didn't happen, right, if we didn't have that shift, then you would straight up have a revolution. <laughs> but there's been a lot of rebellions through history, and not all of them have turned into a full-scale social revolution that overturns society. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I am inspired by the ways that people have been pushing back against that kind of recuperation, right? Even something as simple as that eight can't wait meme oh, yeah. that was going around. I think it was being promoted by D-Ray and similar types. Um, almost immediately, some abolitionist group came up with a counter meme, shall we say. <laughs> the meme wars. Um, about eight steps to, you know, actual abolition. And we're seeing more... More and more people are talking about it. It's fucking crazy. Yeah, I'm in a group for The Best Show, a Facebook group for The Best Show, which is one of my favorite podcasts. It's just not a political show at all. It's, you know, the audience is largely nerds who like uh, power pop. The, the Facebook group has just been talking about politics for like the, a week straight, like really talking about what anti-racism is and the stakes of it. And people are starting to post some ideas of what to do. And even in this group, someone posted about D-Ray, and there's just tons of comments about, like, fuck that guy, <laughs> fuck his vest, fuck Aid Can't Wait, we need full abolition. And, of course, you know, abolition means different things to different people. Uh, for some people, it just means, like, cutting police funding and putting into social programs. Sure. For some people, it means, like, actually getting rid of the police and having, you know, full autonomy in neighborhoods or something like that. For communists, it means you know, getting rid of the bourgeois state and creating a proletarian <laughs> dictatorship. Right. Um, so, like, it's important, I think, when we engage with uh, people trying to move away from reformism, understanding that reforming the police has not worked at all uh, over, these, over the years since, since Black Lives Matter, um, to try to ask, like, good questions about what these things mean, uh, what, you know, like, for example, Alex Vitale, who we had on the yes. show in December is criticizing what Minneapolis is doing by getting rid of the Minneapolis Police Department, right. saying that they did this thing, same thing in Camden, and although police murders went down, arrests went up. Yeah, we have to be critically engaging about what this abolition thing means and not just, uh, not just again, blanketly critiquing it or blanketly saying, I'm an abolitionist. There has to be some content to what that means. And if you're a revolutionary, uh, some strategy about how, how that gets closer to taking on the origins of 
racism and police violence, which is class society itself. There you go. No one's saying that Nancy Pelosi up there in front of the reporters with a kente cloth is enough. So, yeah, I think um, the abolitionist framework is a good one to be working with because it pulls on so many other threads, right? There's no one doing this kind of work that I know of who wants to leave everything else about society intact, who wants to leave capitalism intact, right? It can't, ha- it can't happen in a vacuum, and that's the whole point. Like, it's going to require an, a rethinking entirely of how we relate to one another, um, how we relate to property, and how we deal with each other in communities and a real like rethinking of how we get community, right? Because that's the thing that people keep on coming back to when they talk about abolition, that chant, who keeps us safe? We We, keep us safe. Community is the thing that keeps people safe. It's not the cops, it's not prisons, those make people less safe. And when you take people out of their communities, you know, even if they have committed a violent act, um, what do people need after that? They need to be restored. How do they do that? Um, they do that through relationships with other people. And it's not hard to see how this links into what we're always talking about on this show, right? About how capitalism dissolves all social bonds and how if we really want to move forward to uh, the kind of society we all want to see, um, we really need to regrow the bonds of community wherever they've been severed. And this is the, the way the community, community, the word is used, is very disingenuous because that's another way that... Um, misleaders and and people in the media have tried to again undermine this black-led multiracial working class coalition alliance that has arisen out of this community can be a very backwards looking thing community can be very ambiguous too the only real community that exists right now and what we're fighting against is of course the material community of capital when we talk about creating a community that can come together that's a group of working class people who can fight back and fight for their own lives and create the institutions necessary to live past what we're living through now to get beyond the material community of capital and actually create a working class, a proletarian community of freedom and dignity for all. The human community. The human community. I mean, why did our legal system arise in the first place? Why did the system of bourgeois justice arise in the first place? It was because society needed a way to keep people in line and for people to relate to one another through laws and through contracts in a world where people didn't know each other. People were alienated from each other, right? Like I keep thinking back to um, our interview with Molly Crabapple when I asked her, you know, what we can learn from the uh, uprisings in Puerto Rico and the mutual aid activities in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria and all of those uh, phenomena. And she said, you know, um, the thing that made me feel safest walking around at night in a disaster area was I was in a community where everybody knew each other and everybody was looking out for each other. And it it might seem like an impossible task, right? Because that's just not the world that we're living in for the most part, but we got to do it. Like we got to keep on doing mutual aid. Um, If you maybe are too scared to go to a protest where cops might beat you up, that's totally fine. Like there are so many other things that you can be doing to try to build these networks of solidarity and get to know your neighbors. And not to be a catastrophist or to put too fine a point on it. uh, We're in this moment of triple crisis. 
Uh, we are in a social and economic crisis out of COVID and a crisis of legitimacy of the bourgeois state. There are other crises coming, and the main one is probably the ecological crisis. We all know that that has already begun and is on the horizon. So forming mutual aid networks and creating the kind of human communities necessary in order to move forward without a lot of the baggage of the past is super important for a lot of reasons. It's only going to get more important as time goes on. And if you're the TFW and no GF guy, <laughs> uh, human community is a nice place to meet a GF. That's right. We're going to we're going to confront and oversell insult dumb at the same time as we confront everything else too. That's right. Dead ass. So to to kind of wind things out, I think um, we are in a kind of Thermidorian period right now. We are in a period where although the effects of the revolt have been kind of blunted right now, it has changed the conversation. We're going to see politicians trying to navigate the grounds that we as the working class have created. Don't be fooled, ultimately, right? Abolition means a lot of things, but it certainly doesn't mean what Nancy Pelosi and her kente cloth is proposing, right? That At the same time, just because things have kind of changed now, we've gone from a lot of bad protesters, quote-unquote, to like just good protesters, and even those marches are wearing down. Listen to what Andy said about these cycles of struggles, how the next time something pops off, and it has to be, the social contradictions are way too much right now for this to be the last revolt in American history. When those pop off, they're going to pop off with a vengeance. And we need to prepare ourselves, whether that's the party, whether that's a cadre, whether that's mutual aid networks or whatever it is, prepare ourselves together to be ready for this next one of these to arise so that it becomes even less likely that they could be recuperated. It becomes even less likely that abolition can turn into some D-Ray bullshit. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And just to add that when we're talking about this, when we're, you know, because everyone's going to romanticize this because everybody participated, um, we need to emphasize the spirit of May 28th when the third precinct was taken uh, and the weekend that followed rather than the the week of peaceful protest that we just saw. Not to totally shame that, but that's the weekend the politicians want us to remember. That's the weekend the police commissioners have praised, uh, you know, the LAPD posted like one of these protests on their Twitter feed. Uh, that's how you know um, they're get, get, getting control back. So we have to remember when they were losing control and when they were scared and we were posing the most threat to them. And that's what should be represented of, uh, along, of course, with the, the memories and the names and the stories of the martyrs. And that's, yeah. And, and recognize too that a Rubicon has been crossed. When that police station, when the third precinct in Minneapolis fell to the working class of that city, when it was looted, when it was burnt to the fucking ground, that proved something, which is that we can do this. Not that exact thing, of course, right? But these forces of uh, order and these forces of reaction and ultimately these forces of capital can be defeated. And we know that now because we saw the heroes in Minneapolis do that. We are seeing the cracks in state power emerge in real time. Right. This is uh, it feels qualitatively different than anything that's come before. I mean, my memories of Occupy are just regular people facing off against this seemingly uh, infinite army of cops. And they seem to be all powerful. Right. Um, and that, that's 
it was very, very different this time around to join up with various protests around town where the cops were barely, barely present. And it wasn't because they didn't want to police these protests. It was because there were just so many people involved. Uncontrolled. Like the scope of it was enormous. It was all over in every borough. It was all over the place. And they had to prioritize where to send the cops based on which crowds were considered ruly versus unruly. Good versus bad. Orderly versus <laughs> disorderly, right? And oftentimes that defaulted to protecting private property because that's most of what the cops are there for. Um, it wasn't because they liked what we were doing. Um, in fact, I saw a good Twitter thread, I think I retweeted it, showing like the statistics about how when people are protesting against the police directly, um, the police tend to crack down a lot harder than when they're protesting about other things. And for the naysayers out there who are like, this is just a particularistic struggle. This is simply against police brutality. This is simply about the people who are, who are murdered directly by state violence. It is, a, it is about that, but it's about even more because, as Jamie said, the police are there for a lot of reasons. They're there pr to protect private property, and if you're a union organizer, they're also there to let the replacement workers into the fucking, onto the shop floor. They're there to break up your picket lines, right? They are there to brutalize you at every turn and also protect the interests of capital. So, as we continue on this fight and continue on this struggle, it is absolutely key that this force, that this violent state apparatus be confronted because from this follows everything else that we want in this world. Not chaos and disorder, but the creation of the human community beyond the community of capital. That's right. And uh, for all you naysayers out there saying, I mean, there's, there's like liberal versions and conservative versions of this, right? There's the right wingers saying, oh, this is a tragedy. Why are you politicizing it, <laughs> yeah. right? As if it's not the causes of the tragedy are not extremely political and the culmination of many processes yeah. that have and, been going and, on. And, for a, and a presidential years. candidate named Joe Biden is central to the politics of it. Yeah. And then there are other people, maybe well-meaning liberals who are like, White people, you know, go protest in your, this is not your hood. Um, step, step back. This is a, this is a black issue. It's, it's, it's disproportionately a black issue, but it is not only a black issue. It, it is a, it is a working class issue. The cops kill working class people of all races, uh, disproportionately black and Latino, but, um, this is a fight that everybody needs to get involved in. And going back to what we were talking about with Assad Hader, like the, the, the artificial walling off of like class politics from quote unquote identity politics is a dead end for the left. You never know what's going to radicalize somebody. You never know what's going to set off that spark. And in a country with such a deep, deep history of intertwined um, racial oppression and uh, capitalist exploitation, it's not that surprising that so much revolutionary fervor would be coming through this avenue. And that's not something to be afraid of. That's, that's not something to, uh, to say, oh, you're just neoliberals because you care about race. Like, no, Th those are your class enemies, the people who are saying that. We, this needs everybody. We need the entire class to get on board with it. And it's really inspiring to see the way they have been. Andy, you want to say a last thing or are you done? I'm, I'm good. All right. 
And with that, folks, um, we thank you for coming to our 100th episode of The Antifada. Probably misnamed, but it still is one. We've really enjoyed, of course, doing this over the last couple of years. And uh, your patron support has been excellent. But just uh, the fact that you folks listen to us is, is always daily a uh, shock to me because I never thought we'd be at the point where we are right now. So thanks to Andy and Jamie, uh, for the, to the Antifada crew, and thanks to everybody out there in podcast land. Aw, thanks, Sean. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, everybody, for listening. So you may have seen that we uh, solicited questions. We offered to answer some questions from listeners. And we're going to do that now in a bonus episode that will not just be for patrons. We're going to make it uh, super free. 100th episode Q&A, baby. Let's go. 